Good morning and welcome to Current Radio. It's Friday, January 5th. Today we delve into how foreign governments allegedly spent millions at Trump businesses during his presidency, and an analysis on how a widened Middle East war can still be avoided. Plus, we'll discuss the potential pitfalls of the Philippinization of Indonesian politics and why Illinois voters are asking the elections board to remove Trump from the 2024 ballot. All this coverage and more, up next. Welcome to Current Radio's Politics Station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. House Democrats have released a report alleging that foreign countries spent millions at former President Trump's businesses while he was in office. Abby, our correspondent, is here to help us understand the implications. Abby, can you break down the details of this report for us? Certainly, Michael. The crux of this report revolves around the emoluments clause in the Constitution, which prohibits any U.S. officeholder from accepting emoluments or some form of compensation from a foreign power. The Democrats argue that President Trump, by not divesting himself when he became president, was accepting emoluments by still profiting from the Trump Organization. So what kind of numbers are we talking about here? The report alleges that at least $7.8 million was received from 20 foreign governments, with the majority of this money going to Trump Tower and Trump Hotels. The largest contributor was China, with the Industrial Bank of China spending $5.4 million at Trump Tower during Trump's time in office. And how has the Trump Organization responded to these allegations? The Trump Organization has argued that the payments from the Industrial Bank of China were part of a 20-year lease that the bank entered into in 2008, before Trump had even entered the race for president. They also claim that all profits were given back to the United States Treasury and that the allegations are entirely political. So it seems like the Democrats are not establishing a quid pro quo, but rather arguing that Trump violated the emoluments clause. Is that correct? That's right, Michael. The Democrats are alleging a constitutional violation, not necessarily a quid pro quo. However, it's important to note that this report seems to be a political counterpunch to Republicans' impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden and his family's foreign business dealings. The political implications of these allegations are certainly significant. It's clear that this issue has far-reaching implications, not just for the Trump Organization, but for the broader political landscape as well. Thanks for your insights, Abby. Now, as the Israel-Hamas conflict in Gaza continues, fears of a full-scale Middle East war are growing. Let's bring in our Middle East expert, Abby, to discuss the situation. Abby, what's the current state of affairs? Michael. The situation is indeed tense. There's a growing fear that the Israel-Hamas conflict could escalate into a regional war. The Lebanese foreign minister, Abdallah Bouhabib, expressed this concern recently, stating that such a war would be dangerous for everyone involved. What are the factors that could potentially prevent this escalation? One key factor is that a more expansive conflict may not be in the vital national interests of any of the region's major powers. The economic, political, and military consequences of an escalation would be grave. However, the situation remains volatile, with violent incidents occurring almost daily. Can you give us some examples of these incidents? Certainly. For instance, the U.S. recently carried out a strike in Baghdad, 
that killed a leader from an Iran-backed militia. U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria have repeatedly come under rocket and drone attacks from Tehran's proxies. There's also intensifying fighting between Israel and Hezbollah across the Lebanon border. In another alarming incident, U.S. forces sank three boats belonging to Houthi rebels in the Red Sea following a series of attacks on commercial shipping. So what could be the potential consequences if this situation continues to escalate? The situation is indeed precarious. A mass casualty attack by Iranian proxies against U.S. forces would create political and military imperatives for President Joe Biden to take far more robust military action. If a U.S. or allied ship in the Red Sea sustains serious damage, Biden would face similar choices. The entry into the Red Sea this week of an Iranian destroyer raised the possibility of miscalculations with rival navies operating in close quarters in fraught waters. What are the key players in the region doing to avoid a full-scale conflict? The key players' interest in avoiding conflict could act as a circuit breaker. Israel, for instance, is already embroiled in a hot war in Gaza, and a full-scale war with Hezbollah could subject Israeli citizens to bombardments potentially far greater than those suffered from Hamas rocket attacks last year. The United States is intensifying a strategy to try to stop things spilling out of control. Iran may have more to gain from using its sprawling network of proxy groups to exert lower-level costs on Israel and the United States than it would from plunging into a direct conflict. This is indeed a complex and volatile situation. Thanks for your insights, Abby. Now let's delve into the world of Southeast Asian politics. Andreas Ufen, a renowned expert in the field, coined the term Philippinization back in 2006 to describe the political changes in Indonesia. Currently, we're seeing this concept peak with the pairing of Prabowo Subianto and Gibran Rakabuming Raka. Abby, our expert on Southeast Asian politics, could you explain the concept of Philippinization and how it's playing out in Indonesia? Absolutely, Michael. Philippinization refers to the rise of presidentialized parties, growing intra-party authoritarianism, the influence of vote buying, a lack of meaningful political platforms, weak party loyalty, and the emergence of new local elites. This term was coined by Ufen to describe the political landscape in Indonesia, which he saw as increasingly resembling that of the Philippines. The recent pairing of Subianto and Raka is seen as the epitome of this trend. So how does this pairing mirror the success of the Unite Team Marcos Jr. Duterte tandem in the Philippines? The Marcos Jr. Duterte tandem achieved one of the most lopsided victories in modern Philippine electoral history. Their success was largely due to their ability to capitalize on the Philippinization trend. They leveraged their personal popularity, used vote-buying tactics, and exploited weak party loyalties to secure their victory. Subianto and Raka seem to be employing a similar strategy in Indonesia. Interesting. Can you give us a bit of historical context to understand these political developments in Indonesia? Certainly. To understand the current political climate in Indonesia, we need to look back at the era of Soharto's autocratic rule. The political landscape was heavily controlled and opposition was suppressed. However, since the fall of Soharto, Indonesia has been grappling with the transition to democracy. This has led to a rise in political parties and candidates who are more focused on personal gain than on serving the public. The Philippinization trend is a reflection of these changes. It's fascinating to see how historical events shape current political landscapes. 
Thanks for the insights, Abby. Now in a new development, voter groups in Illinois and Massachusetts have filed motions to bar Donald Trump from the 2024 ballot, citing the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. Abby, our correspondent, is here to shed some light on this. Abby, can you walk us through the details? Absolutely, Michael. The groups, in conjunction with the liberal advocacy group Free Speech for People, are calling for a hearing on the matter. They're arguing that Trump's role in the January 6th Capitol attack makes him ineligible to appear on both the primary and general election ballots. The petitioners claim that Trump has never expressed regret for the attack and has not apologized on behalf of his supporters. So this is based on the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. Can you explain a bit about what that is? Certainly. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, often referred to as the insurrectionist ban, states that anyone who has taken an oath to support the Constitution but later engages in insurrection or rebellion or gives aid and comfort to its enemies is disqualified from holding any office. The petitioners are arguing that Trump's actions on and around January 6th constitute such a violation. This isn't the first state where Trump's eligibility has been challenged, right? What's the current landscape? That's correct, Michael. Similar challenges have been filed in other states. For instance, Maine's Secretary of State removed Trump from that state's 2024 primary ballot, a decision which Trump's team has appealed. The Oregon Supreme Court is also expected to rule on a bid to remove Trump from that state's ballots. However, judges in Michigan and Minnesota have rejected bids to block Trump from their primary ballots. It's a mixed bag, and each state has different rules for how these challenges are adjudicated. So what's next? What are the potential implications of these challenges? The U.S. Supreme Court is widely expected to review a state court ruling in Colorado which found that Trump is ineligible to run for office. While this ruling only applies to Colorado, a decision from the Supreme Court could settle the matter for the entire nation. So we're looking at a situation that could have far-reaching implications. It's certainly a complex situation with potentially significant consequences. Thanks for the insights, Abby. And with that, we conclude our stories for today on Current Radio, and we look forward to bringing you more updates tomorrow.